I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. So Yom Kippur is commonly called the most holy day on the Hebrew calendar, and with good reason. The Torah itself, it's chiastic in nature. The books of the Torah, they reflect each other. A chiasm, if you don't know, go check out the patternsoflifebible.com. It's a project that I've been working on for four and a half years, developing and highlighting chiasms that are found in the text of scripture. Well, a chiasm is a structure in which something is said, and then it's repeated at the very end of the section of text. And then the next thing that's said is then repeated in the second to the last section of text, and third thing, the third to last section of text, so on and so forth, all pointing at something that's highlighted in the very center of the structure. That's very different than how we think in the West. We tend to look for the things that are being highlighted at the end of a text. Well, in the ancient Near East, that's not how they thought. That's not how they wrote. The things that they were highlighting were things that were in the center of the text. Well, the Torah itself, the way that it's structured, the stories that it tells in the books that are contained in the Torah, they are chiastic in nature. Genesis being the beginning, and it is the beginning. Everything is being produced by the word of God. Israel is promised the land of Canaan. Well, if you go to Deuteronomy, it's the end of the Torah. Everything is depending on the word of Hashem. The name of the book Deuteronomy in the Hebrew is actually Devarim, which means the words or words. And Israel is prepared to enter into the land, finally. So we see that these two books, they match each other in some thematic elements. Well, if we go to the book of Exodus, Exodus contains a lot of history. We read of Israel emerging from the families and tribes into a nation, and they're called Hebrews according to their tongue. Well, in the book of Numbers, it's also a book of history. There's a lot of narrative interspersed with commands in both of these books. In the book of Numbers, Israel is now a nation. They're numbered, they're blessed as a nation, and they are called Hebrews according to their nationality and not just according to their tongue. Well, nestled in the center of these books is the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, as we're reading, is the book of worship. It's the handbook of worship. Adonai is in the midst of the people. He is Israel's God. They are his people. And so Leviticus is kind of the focus of the Torah. The whole point of the Torah is to get us to that place of worship with Hashem. Now, the book of Leviticus is also chiastic in nature. Everything in the book of Leviticus points to the center section of the book. And the center section of text in the book of Leviticus is chapter 16. Chapter 16 is the center of the book of Leviticus, the day of Yom Kippur. So if we track the entire scope of the entire narrative of the entire Torah, it all revolves around Leviticus 16. And what is Leviticus 16? It is the atonement ceremony for Israel with their holy God in the midst of the people. 
This festival, it is the festival of the festivals. It's the only one of the festivals besides Passover that has its very own chapter entirely dedicated to it. And it's the only festival that's actually called a Sabbath. All of the others contain days without work, but this is the only one that's called a Sabbath. And it's a festival with a multi-part theme attached to it. You see, all of the fall feast days, they have a running theme that progresses from one holy day to the next. Yom Teruah being the coronation and the celebration of the king. Yom Kippur then being the day of judgment, or submitting ourselves to be judged before our righteous king, and repenting of the sins that so easily beset us. And then Sukkot is the kingdom of God in practice. God is our shelter and our protector and the nation all living together in community with each other. Yom Kippur is the center of these fall festival feast days as well. Yom Kippur comes with a very peculiar set of instructions for Israel, and we read of it throughout the Torah. Leviticus 16, 29-31 And this shall be for you a law forever in the seventh new moon, on the tenth day of the new moon. You afflict your beings, and you do no work, the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on that day he makes atonement for you, to cleanse you, to be clean from all your sins before Hashem. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you shall afflict your beings, a law forever. And then Leviticus 23, verses 27-32. On the tenth day of the seventh new moon is Yom HaKippurim. It shall be a set-apart gathering for you, and you shall afflict your beings, and shall bring an offering made by fire to Hashem. And you do no work on that same day, for it is Yom Kippur, to make an atonement for you before Hashem, your Elohim. For any being who is not afflicted on that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And any being who does any work on that same day, that being I shall destroy from the midst of his people. You do no work, a law forever, throughout your generations, in all your dwellings. It is a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your beings. On the ninth day of the new moon, from evening to evening, you observe your Sabbath. And in Numbers 29, verse 7, And on the tenth day of the seventh new moon, you have a set-apart gathering, and you shall afflict your beings. You do no work. Six times in three separate chapters about Yom Kippur, we are told to ana our nefesh on Yom Kippur. So what does it mean to ana our nefesh, to afflict our souls as it is in most translations? Well, first let's look to the word ana and let's see what it means. Now the dictionary definition is as follows. It means to afflict, to oppress, humble, to be afflicted, or to be bowed down. If we dig a bit deeper, we find that this has a huge range of meaning. To depress literally or figuratively, transitively or intransitively. To abase oneself, the affliction of oneself, to chasten oneself, to deal hardly with, to defile, to exercise force, to humble, again, oneself, to hurt, to ravish, to submit, to self-weaken in any ways. Now that's hugely helpful, right? I mean, we do know that it means to depress, chasten, or to deal hardly with, etc. So this still gets us no further to understanding this word in this context. Well, if there's one truth about words and their definitions, it's that their definition is derived from their usage. We can look in any dictionary from the 1960s for a definition of the word gay, and it will give us a definition that is not in use today. 
It's an old definition. Is this old definition helpful for us in modern society or not? Well, I would submit that it's not. To define that word today, we must look for how the word is used today. So if we want to discover what anam means, we must look to how it's used in scripture, not in a dictionary. So I did a word study on the word ana in scripture, and you may be shocked at what I discovered. This word is used 83 times in scripture. And here are the different ways that ana is used to become a slave. It means that in 10 places, to be afflicted or humbled as a slave. Genesis 15, verse 13, Genesis 16, verses 6 and verse 9, Exodus 1, verses 11 and 12, Deuteronomy 26, verse 6, Judges chapter 16, verse 5, verse 6 and verse 19, and Psalm 105, verse 18. Now it can mean also a military defeat. It's used this way in 11 times to be humbled by your enemies. Exodus 32, verse 18. Numbers 24, verse 24. It's used twice in that verse. 1 Kings 11, 39. 2 Kings 17, verse 20. Psalm 89, verse 22. Psalm 94, verse 5. Isaiah 60, verse 14. Isaiah 64, verse 12. And Nahum 1, verse 12. Again, used two times in that one verse. Now, a can mean to be exiled, to be humbled by being removed from the nation that you were in. 1 Kings 2.26 is used twice in that verse. 1 Kings 11 verse 39. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 33. Zechariah 10 verse 2. And Zephaniah 3 verse 19. It can be as a recipient of a drought or a famine. It's used twice in this way. 1 Kings 8.35 and 2 Chronicles 6.26. It can mean as a punishment for sins. It's used four times this way. Psalm 90, verse 15. Psalm 107, verse 17. Isaiah 53, verses 4. And Isaiah 53, verse 7. It can mean sexual impropriety. Sex before marriage. Whether that's rape, or at some sort of forbidden time, or with forbidden people. It's used 13 times this way, where someone is humbled sexually. Genesis 31, verse 50. Genesis 34, verse 2. Deuteronomy 22, verse 24 and verse 29. Judges 19, verse 24. Judges 20, verse 5. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 12, 14, 22, and 32. Ezekiel 22, verses 10 and 11. And Lamentations 5, verse 1. And it can mean general oppression. It's used 20 times to mean general oppression. Usually it's at the hands of God, but it could also be at the hands of enemies. For example, Exodus 22, verse 22, and verse 23, where it's used twice. 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. Job chapter 30, verse 11. Job 37, 23. Psalm 55, 19. Psalm 88, 7. Psalm 90, verse 15, Psalm 102, 23, Psalm 116, verse 10, Psalm 119, verses 67, 71, 75, and 107, Psalm 132, verse 1, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 3, verse 10, and Psalm 88, 1. It can mean humility under another, admittance of wrong. 
uh, Numbers chapter 30, verse 13, and Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. And it can mean to cower in fear. Isaiah chapter 31, verse 4. Now, there are eight times in Scripture where we find the word anah used specifically with the denial of food intake or fasting. Isaiah 58, verse 3. They say, why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our beings, Ana and Nefesh, and you took no note? Look, in the day of your fastings you find pleasure and drive on all your labors. Then later in verse 5 of Isaiah 58, is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his being? Again, it's that exact same phrase, Ana and Nefesh. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Do you call this a fast and an acceptable day to Hashem? And then again in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10, If you extend your being to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted being, the one who has been afflicted through the denial of food, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noon. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, and you shall remember that Hashem your Elohim led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to anah you, to humble you, to prove you, to know what is in your heart, whether you guard his commands or not. And he humbled you, anahed you, and let you suffer hunger. And he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. Again, later in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, in order to humble you, to annoy you, and to try you, to do you good in the end. Psalm 35, verse 13, but I, when they were sick, I put on sackcloth. I humbled my being with fastings. I annoyed my nefesh with fastings, and my prayer would return to my own bosom. Ezra 8.21, I then proclaimed a fast there and the river of Ahava to humble ourselves before our God and to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, and he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself, Daniel was participating in a fast at that point, before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. So anah can mean to be oppressed or to be defeated in military victory or to be taken advantage of sexually or to be made a slave or to be sent into exile, or it can mean to fast. So if we use these examples of the usage of the word, what would our conclusion be as its usage in connection to Yom Kippur? To have a day off work and to simply feel sorry? Is that what it's talking about? I don't know about you, but a day off work, it's a vacation for me. Well, Yom Kippur is not to be simply a vacation. It's to be a judgment day. You are to be afflicted on this day. God, in his great wisdom, he declared food off limits for the day of Yom Kippur. Now, every week in gatherings around the world, we say a blessing to God, our Creator, for creating the food that we eat. We thank Him for His wonderful bounty. And then for one day a year, He declares that any food that's eaten, it's not from Him. He did not provide food for this day. 
And would you steal into the palace of the king and take food from his pantry when you're under orders not to do so? If you would take food that's not directly from him, then where do you draw the line? Would you take other pleasures that he has not provided for you? Money? Sex? Power? The fact is, is that throughout scripture, good things are denied to God's people for a time and for a season. He does so for several reasons that we're going to get into in a little bit. But throughout scripture, this denial is for a single purpose. To ana, to promote humility and a humble attitude. Now, there is the possibility that some may die without a regular intake of food. If this is the case for you, then life trumps all other concerns. But let's face it, most of us aren't going to die if we don't eat. We'll be just fine. And it's only a few hours without food. I mean, think about it. You eat before sundown. You go to bed with a full stomach. In the morning, if you wake up at 7 a.m. or so, you'll have maybe 12 hours to suffer your empty stomach. Can you afflict yourself for 12 hours? Could you be humbled in the desert with only manna to eat for 40 years? Or would you complain about not having leeks and melons or the stew pots that Egypt has? What about coffee or chocolate or hamburger or air conditioning? Can you go 40 years of manna without complaining that Pharaoh gave you better food? So why not return to him? So then the question arises, why fasting? What is it about fasting that connects it to Yom Kippur? Once again, usage determines definition. And all throughout scripture, fasting is connected to two primary ideas. One, beseeching God for some benefit. And two, for the repentance of sins. First Samuel 7, 6, And they gathered to Mitzpah, and they drew near, and they poured it out before Hashem. And they fasted that day, and said there, We have sinned against Hashem. And Samuel rightly ruled the children of Israel at Mitzpah. Joel 1.14 Sanctify a fast, call an assembly, gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, into the house of Hashem your God, and cry out to Hashem. Jonah chapter 3, 7-9 through nine. And he proclaimed a fast, and said throughout Nineveh, By decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock shall taste whatever. Let them not eat, let them not even drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and call mightily to God. Let each one turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows whether God does not turn and relent, and shall turn away from the heat of his displeasure, so that we do not perish. Nehemiah 9, 1-2 And on the twenty-fourth day of the month the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on them, and the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and they confessed their sins and the crookednesses of their fathers. And Daniel chapter 9, 3-5 So I set my face toward Hashem, the God, to seek by prayer and by supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to Hashem, my God, and I made confession, and I said, O Hashem, great and awesome God, guarding the covenant and the loving kindness to those who love him and to those who guard his commands. We have sinned and did crookedness and did wrong and rebelled to turn aside from your commands and from your judgments. Repentance, confession, 
and repentance. And if we go back to Leviticus 16, we'll discover that this is, in fact, a large part of this day. Leviticus 16, verse 21. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and shall confess over it all of the crookednesses of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, and shall put them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. The high priest was to confess the sins of the children of Israel. While the high priest was repenting of the sins of Israel over the head of the scapegoat, the entire nation was fasting. All of Israel was to repent individually and corporately for their sins. Now, the 40 days leading up to Yom Kippur, they are the days of repentance. They are time to meditate on your life, to dig within and to discover the ways that you have failed God. And if you haven't engaged in repentance in the 40 days leading up to Yom Kippur, then Yom Kippur is the time to do so. Yom Kippur is the time to repent. For Yom Kippur is Judgment Day. The day to repent. Why is Yom Kippur the time to repent? Well, we catch a glimpse of why this is the time in the order of the feast that I spoke of earlier. What is the next festival in line? Well, it's Sukkot. It's the trial run of the kingdom of God. What is it that John the Baptist declared in Matthew 3, verse 1 through 2? And in those days, John the baptizer came proclaiming in the wilderness of Judah, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of God. What is it that these fall feasts all symbolize? They're the kingdom of God. Yom Teruah celebrates the king. Sukkot celebrates the kingdom. And Yom Kippur celebrates atonement being achieved. It is a day to celebrate. It is a day to rejoice that our sins have been removed. And interestingly enough, we do that by humbling ourselves. For all of this talk of afflicting ourselves, fasting in Yom Kippur is not to be used for the purpose of self-punishment. Fasting isn't for the purpose of self-flagellation. Now that might seem like the focus. Afflict yourselves, it says, but I assure you it's not. I was reading a book recently and the topic of Yom Kippur came up and the declaration was made that the Jews fast on Yom Kippur in order to achieve atonement. Fasting does not achieve atonement. It never did. Atonement was achieved through the high priest. The atonement was achieved through the sacrifice. It was always the high priest that made atonement on the day of Yom Kippur. It was never achieved through the individual or anything that the individual did. So then why fast? Why is it connected to repentance? And why is it that we fast on Yom Kippur? Well, there are several reasons for this command, and so let's spend the rest of our time exploring. Why do we fast? Not even just on Yom Kippur. Why do we fast in general? Well, first off, fasting, it reminds us of our fallen nature. It keeps at the front of our minds the fact that we are not self-sustaining. We need outside nourishment. Our bodies need things in order to continue to function. We need God to keep us alive. Our weakness reminds us of this, and it drives us toward him. This is how the idea of the denial of food is used in Deuteronomy 8, 
We read it before. We'll read it again. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. And you shall remember that Hashem your God led you in all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, prove you, and to know what is in your heart, whether you will guard his commands or not. And he humbled you, and he let you suffer hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. God causes hunger to drive us to humility. Second Corinthians 12, 9-10 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, then, I shall rather boast in my weakness, so that the power of the Messiah rests on me. Therefore I take pleasure in weaknesses, in insults, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for the sake of Messiah. For when I am weak, then he is strong. Our human weakness allows God's power to work in us. It demonstrates a desire for God to work in our lives, and fasting ultimately drives us to thankfulness and gratitude to God for providing all that we do need. It is an absolute truth that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And fasting gives us this concrete reminder of this. I can tell you, there is no meal that tastes better than the first meal after a long fast. Or how about this? Galatians 5 verse 24. And those who are of Messiah have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. There is no more basic desire of the flesh than food. Part of our crucifixion with him is to crucify our flesh, to learn to not allow it to control us, to teach us to not be slaves to the flesh, even our very stomachs, but rather slaves to God. The second reason that we fast is because our king commands it. And this is the Jonah 3 principle of fasting, Jonah 3, 7 through 9. And he proclaimed and said throughout Nineveh, By a decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, shall taste whatever. Let them not eat, let them not even drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and call mightily to God, and let each one of us turn from his his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows whether God does turn and relent, and shall turn away from the heat of his displeasure, so that we do not perish. In Nineveh, the king commanded a fast for the purpose of repentance. Now we aren't told what happened to the people of Nineveh who disobeyed. We get the idea that no one disobeyed this order in Nineveh because the king commanded it. But this reason piggybacks off of the message of Yom Teruah. Obedience to a king in whatever he commands, regardless of what that means for us as individuals. The king could command our immediate death and our response should be, yes, sir. It's his prerogative as king to command whatever he will command. And it's our prerogative as his subjects to obey his command in all ways at all times. If the king commands a fast for the purpose of repentance, our response is, yes, sir. The third reason for fasting is the Isaiah 53 principle. The principle connected to Galatians 5.24 that we just heard. 
we can also connect it to this verse. Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Self-denial and suffering? No, rather, recognition of what our atonement costs. In his last day, Yeshua didn't eat. From the time of the Last Supper until the cross, no food passed his lips. It's more than just this. The suffering that he endured on the cross was enormous, and that was the cost of our atonement. And from this side of history, we can appreciate that the command to afflict yourself is a way for us to catch a glimpse of what was required to achieve the atonement that we enjoy today. Isaiah 53, 1-5 Who has believed our report, and to whom was the arm of Hashem revealed? For he grew up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor splendor that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. Despised and rejected by men, a man of pains and knowing sickness, and as one from whom the face is hidden, being despised and we did not consider him. Truly he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains, yet we reckoned him smitten, stricken by God, and anna, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our crookednesses. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He was afflicted on our behalf. Let's recognize that. He suffered greatly. In engaging in this affliction, we are not adding to what has been done. We are recognizing, thanking, and reflecting on the price of my nefesh, the price of my soul, what it was worth to God to achieve a relationship with us. The fact is, is that if we go into Yom Kippur and the fast, dreading the discomfort that it will cause, we'll miss the point because we focus on our own suffering. If we go into Yom Kippur with the idea that we are achieving atonement through our own suffering, again, we'll miss the point. It would be better for you to not fast and to engage in the fast with those in your mind as your reason for the fast. If we make excuses for why we can't fast and our life is not at stake, we run the risk of offending our king and committing a high-handed sin, of making our ideas of most importance of rejecting a command of the king because it might inconvenience us. The fast on Yom Kippur, it opens a space. It gives us time to focus our attention on God. It makes us weak, and it makes us more reliant upon him and his power. It reminds us of the cost of our own sins, the price that was paid to achieve relationship with him and to bring us into his presence. So in the future, when you go into the fast of Yom Kippur, don't make the fast about me or us or our own humiliation before him. Rather, make it about repentance and reconciliation with him. Make it about him, the one who provides all we need, the one who has given us atonement as a gift 
Not because of anything we have done or anything we could do, but because he is just that awesome and amazing and wonderful. Because he is our king and he has commanded that we engage in a fast and repentance. Atonement has been achieved on our behalf. And Yom Kippur is the day that we engage in and we remember that atonement. And repentance, atonement, all of these ideas are ideas that are necessary as we derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.